We interrupt this program to bring you the utility players classified results. Arsenal nil, Leicester City one, Heart of Midlothian one, Arbroath nil, Scotland Rugby 48, Georgia 7, Tennessee Titans 24, Pittsburgh Steelers 27. Rory McIlroy, 15 under, tied 17th. Tommy Fleetwood, 7 under, tied 57th. Hello. We are the Utility Players, I'm Ali, and I'm Rory, and welcome to our world of sport. Well, a rather up and down week for the uh, classified results this week, Rory. A a very frustrating performance from Arsenal uh, on Sunday, a very frustrating loss for the Tennessee Titans on Sunday, a very good victory for Hearts. Uh, cementing their place back in the championship. And Scottish rugby came back with a an easy, but not necessarily convincing performance against Georgia. Yeah. I mean, I think it, we were both feeling pretty bleak on Sunday night after Arsenal's 1-0 loss against Leicester. And then obviously your Titans being so close to coming back into it, missing a field goal at the end of the game to take it to overtime. But it started all right. Friday night was good. Hearts, a much diff- more difficult game. Uh, our growth and actually showing that the championship isn't going to be as easy as it maybe looked like it was going to be after we beat Dundee 6-2, but showing that different sides of the team and the professionalism to get through and to win the game, which is brilliant. And Scotland, it just feels like it was a bit of a like a, a loss-loss situation for Scotland. Obviously, if they lose or that's a close game, it's terrible because it's Georgia and they're rubbish, but if they go out and win convincingly like they did, then it's like, oh, well, it was an easy game. It, it doesn't really matter. But I think they were professional. I do agree that they didn't light it up like maybe they could have done. But it's hard when you're playing kind of poorer opposition and Georgia weren't great, to be honest, which was a shame because they've shown a lot of potential over the last few years and it would have been good to see them come out and be competitive. So I think Scott were professional, even if yeah, they weren't all guns blazing. Well, I think, they, I mean, most of the Georgian players hadn't played a game of rugby yeah. um, since since February, since the pandemic really took its took its hold over sports um, globally I, I think the thing is though that in terms of sponsor you know if you watch the all blacks or the english at their pomp or the south africans at their pomp or, or the irish or the welsh they come up against lesser teams and they and they still show you what they're about as a team and i just thought scotland yes it was professional it just but it just it didn't spark any great excitement or expectations around what they you know can achieve going going down to Cardiff or not Cardiff Clonetley this next weekend and what have you and maybe it's just the pessimistic Scottish fans and in, in me and, and as you say you, you win you win 48 7 you, you, you've done a job but I just didn't feel hugely inspired about about how it was just kind of not it was more than go through the motions but it wasn't um certainly sort of a a dominant performance of, of real excitement yeah I think that's fair I think that and I and I it certainly hasn't made me go oh we'll go down to Wales now and give him a good a good shot I mean I think we'll be competitive and I think like we always like we always try to be but yeah it's not made me think oh we're really actually in, in form here I'm gonna have a go at it and it almost felt a bit like a game with no fans like I know that sounds silly to say but we've seen a lot of competitive sport without fans and and we've seen a lot of competitive sport where the fan the lack of fans doesn't seem to have affected too much I think kind of I was watching the highlights of the European Cup final from a couple of weeks ago. Um, just this morning, and it, it did—you didn't even tell there wasn't fans in the stadium. But it almost felt like a Scottish performance without the gusto of Murrayfield behind them that, that normally drives them on to do so well. If, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think so. It was just—it was almost like a training exercise, you know, something you'd see at the back pitch of Murrayfield when they're, they're going through sort of phases of play and stuff. And and we've spoken spoken previously about players needing to find that inner drive to 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 combat the lack of fans and yeah maybe we're being overly critical you know because it was such a convincing victory but 
it just didn't have that kind of next level of of quality and, and intensity that we want to see. But one thing we did we did see in the game, and something that was certainly the commentators kept referring to, is the possible combination of having both Finn Russell and Adam Hastings on the pitch at the same time, almost similar in terms of what we've seen with England with George Ford and, and Owen Farrell and, and sort of two playmakers at 10 and 12. You know, what's your kind of thoughts on potentially that as being an option, whether it's a, a regular option or not for Scotland? Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's certainly an option. And I think it's exciting that we have that option. I think we need to be careful because... We talked previously how Scotland seems to be unsettled in their lineups, and and the centre seems to be the the part of the team where we do seem to have a lot of options that keep to chop and change, and, and nothing kind of regular settles. I think a lot of it will depend who you play at thirteen. If you've kind of got a Duncan Taylor type thirteen, who's a bit more kind of one dimensional. Not, I don't say that in a kind of disparaging way. I think Duncan Taylor is a brilliant player, but kind of someone who's more about carrying the ball being good going forward, good defensively, and maybe less of a flair 13 that you might have got from someone like Hugh Jones, then yeah, it might be good to have them two flair players inside them and you might get a nice balance that way. But I think we need to be a little bit careful about having Russell and Hastings at 10-12 because they're both very much off-the-cuff players. They're both players that will take risks and therefore, in part, make mistakes because of that. So you almost feel like having one of them is fine because then you've got the players around them, the cool heads around them to kind of keep them steady. Like I, I know Laidlaw often got a lot of criticism for potentially being a bit slow, potentially not being as dynamic as some of our scrum halves. But I actually really liked having Laidlaw at nine when he was around because he almost counteracted Finn Russell because Finn Russell was so kind of flamboyant and off the cuff that having that little bit of a cool head at nine just kind of counteracts that. So if you've got Ali Price who's a bit more quicker, a bit more off the cuff than Finn Russell, than Adam Hastings. I mean, there's potential for absolute sparks to fly, but at the same time, you almost think, where's the cool head in that key position of the team? So I think certainly if you're chasing a game or you're, you're trying to create something, yeah, it'd be great to have them both on the pitch and see if they can make some magic happen. But in international rugby, it's when it is such fine margins that can win game and it, it can be kicking corners, making good decisions, keeping the ball in the forwards maybe having them both on isn't always the best option. Because I think when you, you compare it to Farrell and Fords, they're both quite different players to to Hastings and Russell. Like this, they're both standoffs, but neither of them are, are like all or nothing standoffs that Russell and Hastings can sometimes be. Yeah, I guess the other one turns that mix as well is Stuart Hogg, who 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 is a dynamic, explosive, expansive, exciting player. You know, go at fifteen or or even someone like a Blair Kinghorn, who you know. So there's certainly options there um, to have that creative style of play. I say it all the time. I mean, I'm a massive fan of Hugh Jones. I know other people are up and down. <clears throat> I think you have to try and find a way to get him into the team, and then maybe that comes you know, that, that comes a little bit too much. But it provides options, and and we cry out. Oh, certainly I'm crying for a little bit of continuity in terms of team selection. So it'll be uh, intriguing to see which way Gregor Townsend um, takes that. So although international rugby returned this this weekend and, and for all the Six Nations teams apart from England uh, who had their game against the Barbarians postponed due to some uh, discretion from Barbarians players, the main rugby event was Exeter uh, winning the double, uh, having done the, the Heineken Cup um, the previous weekend, they beat Wasps in a thrilling game um, to win the uh, the Gallagher Rugby Premiership with a 19-13 win over Wasps. Interesting lead-up to this game with, with Wasps having a coronavirus issues within their within their team and their preparation being a little bit stunted. And I wondered if it was going to be a blow-away victory for Exeter, who certainly are the, the informed team. But Wasps put up a, a, a real, real competitive performance and, and made Exeter work hard for it. Yeah. It was. I mean, it was a it was a fascinating game. I think it was a game where the weather dictated a lot, especially in the second half. We had a good competitive first half, a couple of tries each, and then the heavens just opened, and it and it certainly was even second half. Both teams were kind of struggling to get a foothold and really played the, the their best brand of rugby. But that made for a really interesting final, made for a really competitive final, and I think Wasp did exceptionally well, given that they said they had such issues with their preparation and they were missing, missing some key players but I think we just showed how professional and how solid Exeter are these days and how just they're really a real top top side I mean that goes without saying now that they've done the double with the Heineken Cup and the Gallagher Premiership but I think it just showed a real level of professionalism to get through that games in difficult circumstances and difficult conditions and, and just put in a brilliant match winning performance. 
Yeah, I mean, what was really interesting to me is despite the elements, both teams stuck with what's worked for them all year, which has been playing rugby on the front foot, an expansive brand of of rugby, trying to still go through the hands, not keeping it too close to the vest. And I, I thought, you know, it obviously led some handling areas and things like that, but it still showed a, a really exciting game of rugby, um, which, which was in it to the end. You know, it's there are different ways to play and the purists out there, Potentially would have loved to have seen getting close to the vest and you know a battle of power up front and and not making mistakes. But I think that ultimately just added to the drama drama of it and and the theatre of it for sure. And and it was it was really refreshing to see when when the heavens did open. You kind of thought, oh god, this game's just going to fall apart. But it didn't. I said there was only six points scored in the second half. But it wasn't for a lack of trying or a lack of exciting moments. Certainly, it's interesting you say that though because I feel like if we 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 criticise Scotland here a lot and I feel like if Scotland were in a big game like that and they tried to play the expansive brand of rugby still in those sort of conditions we might have blasted them for it and say they've got to be a little bit smarter but certainly when you're looking at Exeter and they've still won even though they they didn't bring the ball into the chest as much and you say fair play they got the job done yeah and and do you feel you know Exeter are the team to beat uh, I mean we've seen what's happened with Saracens being docked 105 points for their discretions around salary caps going down to the uh, championship in England. Obviously just done the double. The next powerhouse English rugby Exeter Chiefs. I mean, not long ago, the, the thoughts of Exeter being up there would have been laughable. Yeah, I think certainly. And I think you look at how they've played in Europe and in England. I think they're, they're the next powerhouse potentially of European rugby, never mind English rugby. And you look at the kind of players they've got a lot across the team. They've got a lot of talent. They've got a lot of brilliant players in that team, international players. You look at that back three with Jack Nolan, Stuart Hogg, and you think that's exciting and that's going to score tries. And it's been an amazing story how they've risen up through English rugby, going back into the Premiership and then rising up through the ranks. And in, in a town that loves its rugby and potentially hasn't previously had lots of sporting success. And I think in terms of the English competition, it will be interesting to see how Bristol go now, having obviously finished third this year, just missing out, and also winning the Challenge Cup, so the B European competition, which will give them a good platform to, to build going forward. And it, we could see the real kind of southwest of England, that kind of extra Bristol, two cities very close to each other. Those two could potentially be the rivals in English rugby going forward. And it's going to be really fascinating to see what happens. Okay. Changing sports, talk about rivalries. Um... Two Manchester clubs in, in the Premier League this year are, are getting off to reasonably slow starts. But then, so realistically, is the majority of the Premier League. We haven't really seen any team take the the Premier League by the scruff of the neck. Both teams who were unbeaten at the top with uh, Aston Villa and both lost this weekend, uh, meaning that there's no one with uh, without a loss in, their, in, in the column. And, Manchester City especially having to deal with, with injuries. Uh, we've seen Sergio Aguero go down, Fernandinho go down as well. If anyone looks like they're probably taking off a little bit of a, a, a strong start to the campaign, and it pains me to say it's probably Tottenham. Yeah, the Premier League's been fascinating this year. Like, And I think it's testament to now the volume of quality that is in the Premier League. You look across these these those teams you mentioned, Everton and Aston Villa, they, they've had a good start to the season of the merit, merit of their players. Obviously, Cavill Lewis has been brilliant. James Rodriguez coming into Everton, Richarlison, Allen in the midfield. They've got a real level of quality there. Now, and you look at Aston Villa, obviously one of the, the worst sides in the league last year and, and only just stayed up. And you now look across their team with Grealish and Barkley, John McGinn proving that he's a, he's a Premier League player, and Ollie Watkins potentially being a great signing from Brentford, obviously one of the top scorers in the Championship last year, you think there's now quality across all, the, all those sides and, and you mentioned Tottenham, I think Tottenham almost less their results but more the way they've played that's, that's made them kind of such an uh, exciting brand and such a force this year I think, you look at the West Ham game they, they dropped points there, they've actually dropped quite a lot of home points at home so far this year but they've been playing brilliantly Son and Kane just look unbeatable right now and obviously with Gareth Bale waiting in the wings and we're kind of waiting to see what he can do fully but if he can hit any anywhere near his best form I think Tottenham will unfortunately for us potentially be a threat and said Liverpool is, I think it's almost good for Liverpool that there's nobody who's really running away with it because it means that I think they're not going to quite they haven't quite been at their best so far and without Van Dijk they might not potentially be at their best but without maybe one team to really push them that they could still potentially have a chance of, of going and winning it still. But I think it's fascinating. I think it's testament to the quality of the Premier League. And I think it, it's 
signs that we're going to have a really exciting season going forward. Yeah, and, and the one thing we keep bringing back to is lack of crowds. I mean, that's making a huge difference. I really, I really think it is in terms of whether it's your home support either giving you positive or negative reinforcement. You know, as we talked about with Scottish rugby, when, when, when Murrayfield gets on the edge because things aren't quite going the way, that kind of uncertainty can bubble over. If, 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 if your fans aren't happy or, or aren't confident in, in how your team's performing, that can have as big an impact as a team, your fans getting really behind your team and galvanising them and pushing them to go up to the fifth, sixth, seventh gear. So I think that's, that's having a, a huge impact on things as well and and just allowing teams teams to play worrying rather than worrying about what's going on around it for sure but i think one thing this this kind of new dynamic we've got in the premier league this year is opening up for me and and, and thinking about arsenal who's obviously no secrets we've got a strong affinity for here is i i feel like this is almost a time where arsenal should be really coming out and being competitive and stamping their authority while there's no one else who's really putting their hand up because we saw last year they finished the league on such a high obviously winning the FA Cup and then coming in and winning the Charity Shield at the start of the year and and the feel-good factor around Mikel Arteta and he felt coming into the season there was a chance for them to come out and and, and put a decent showing up and and while there's no teams running away with it or front runners you I was, would certainly hope that kind of feel-good factor and that philosophy that Arteta has implemented would put them into a good place but we've seen actually it's not been a very good start to the season I just want to get your thoughts on Arsenal at the moment Ali because obviously they've now lost their last three games having won the first two and done so pretty unconvincingly it's important to mention they've had a difficult run having Liverpool Man City Leicester who are a good side and now Man U next weekend it's not going to be easy for them those games but other than the Liverpool game it's not like they've been blown away by good teams and you felt that if we were on our if we were on our metal, if we were playing our best football, and maybe how we were at the back end of last season, their games we would and maybe should have won. And it almost feels like the honeymoon period's over for Arsenal now, and it'll be really interesting to see how the next kind of month or two goes, and whether Arteta's philosophy can c- continue the team growing, or now they're hitting a difficult patch when the kind of yeah honeymoon's over. Well, I don't think he's quite actually implemented his full philosophy yet, and I think on. Sunday, it was the first time we saw probably how I think he wants Arsenal to play, which is with a back four rather than a back five, with with Thomas Partey being that final piece that he was probably looking for to allow that to happen. So I think what Arteta's been good at is he's been adaptable to the style of play he wanted he wants to wants to play in terms of his his system. But I don't think he's really fully had the opportunity to to do that. If he's going to a back four, that centre-back pairing is massive. And we saw David Luiz getting injured on the weekend. Um, I'm not sure he'd be the best person to play in, in a back four anyway. He's very much a back five player. Um, Gabriel, who I think is is going to be very good, is still finding his feet. It was the first time Party has played. I think it's still an evolving process, really, in terms of how he wants to play, how he wants to play and how he wants to set up. I mean, my big concern is how we get Bamiyang more involved. I like Lacazette. The fact we've kept him is fine, but I think Bamiyang has to be the focal point of the way Arsenal play their football. And and when he scores goals, Arsenal do well. And, and we've seen not only has Bamiyang not scored goals, he hasn't even looked like a threat in the last three Premier League games. And that is more the the, the concerning thing for me is you've got one of the best talents in the world going forward and I'm wondering if it's not being utilised best. Now, yes, it's been tough competition. We know that. But I think it's not losing the game. It's the performances. And the performances haven't been bad. They haven't been bad, but they've been uninspiring. They've been, you know, even if we'd nicked that game against Man City... And even if we'd end up winning on Sunday 1-0 rather than losing 1-0 to Leicester, the performances probably would have been saying a similar thing to what we were saying about Scotland against Georgia in terms of they were professional, but they were certainly weren't inspiring. So I think it's a case of let's see how Arteta 
actually wants to play. Rather than having to play certain systems and play sets of style of football around what he inherited. And that's what the best coaches do. We mentioned it a couple of series ago. Is the best coaches in the world, they don't come in with one strategy of how to play and, and, and force players to then play to their style of football. What they do is the resources they have at their disposal, they put them in the best possible position to win the game. And I think we're in the still in the transition process of 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 moving to what Arteta would like to do. Now he's got starting to get the resources he wants to. I think that's fair, but certainly it's not also Arsenal that Aubameyang's poor form is affecting. It's also all those managers on Fantasy Premier League that have been brutal, brutally sticking with him over the weeks when he's a lot of money and he's very expensive and he's maybe not bringing the return that you like. But if that makes you feel bad, then none of you will feel bad as I did early in the week where I tried to play my wild card to make basically make enough changes that I could get Son in my team because I had him at the start and I wanted to get him back with this form. But unfortunately, due to an, an error of myself selecting my wild cards, going back and changing my team, and then not reselecting it, I forgot to play my wild cards and I lost 24 points. Minus 24 because I'd forgot to press my wild card and didn't make the changes, Ali. I mean, I know you even felt sorry for me, and that's saying it because you're pretty competitive. I, I, I did. I did feel sorry for you. Um, purely because. I just don't want to give you an excuse when I beat you to say, well, if it hadn't been for that or what have you. But it's been a, it's been a really intriguing fantasy Premier League season so far because the sort of big names haven't been as consistent as as normal. With the you know excluding Kane especially and Son, it's been sort of very very up and down in terms of where the points are coming from and, and with the. Improved performance of uh, the so-called smaller teams. Um, it's been harder to kind of predict where your, your points are coming from. Yeah, for sure. And it's made for fascinating reading to our league. I mean, shout out to the two Haggos that are top of the league right now. Both Tottenham fans, which is why they've had Kane and Son, which has been a big part of their success. Um, and I would like to point out, Ali, that you are 8th and I am 12th, which is disappointing returns from us. I must stay in the utility players league. But if I was 20 point, 24 points up, Having played my wild card, I would have been ahead of you. So my excuse is, is coming out early. I mean, I played my, I actually did play my wild card <laughs> and ended up with about thirty points this week, which was, uh, which I'll put purely down to Aguero bringing Aguero in. I did bring Zaha in, which is something I, I very rarely do. I look at him and look at him and thought, I'm finally going to do it. Um, but I changed the tactics a little bit and, and I'd put not a huge amount of investment in my front three. I'd gone for he- midfield heavy, um, and it had been working. And I thought. I'll go back to what I feel a bit more comfortable with and going more more resources up front, bringing Werner and Aguero in. Um, I was smart enough to have Calvert-Lewin from the start. Um, but the biggest disappointment for me this week is I've left about 20-odd points on the bench, which uh, shows that if I, had to, if I hadn't played my wild card, I may play my bench boost, things have been different. Well, I had Jack Grealish on my bench when Aston Villa played Liverpool. So, <laughs> again, I'm going to try to feel more sorry for myself. Well, it'll be intriguing to see how that develops over the course of the season. Um, but moving on to our first guest of season three, we had a very uh, intriguing chat uh, with 1,500-metre runner uh, and Team GB star Josh Kerr, who's joining us, talks about his journey uh, into moving from the UK across to America and his aspirations to try and get on the podium at Olympics. As ever, there are a number of things going on um, in the world of sports, uh, and here's touching on some of our favourites. The Utility Players Weekly Roundup. The 2020 Australian Rules Grand Final happened this weekend, with Richmond making it back-to-back championships, only the third time for that to happen, beating Geelong in a very tightly contested match, winning 81-50. In Formula One racing, Lewis Hamilton has finally done it. He has beacon Michael Schumacher's record and is now arguably the most successful Formula One driver of all time, having taken the most ever Grand Prix wins. International Rapport returns this week as England and New Zealand take each other on in a three-match series on the 28th, 30th and 1st of November. And in rugby, the Six Nations comes to a close this weekend with the infamous Super Saturday just over six months after it was originally scheduled. We've got England, France and Ireland still contenders to win.
This week, we're joined by uh, Team GB 1,500-meter runner Josh Kerr. Uh, Josh is a former European junior champion in 2015. Uh, he also competed at the 2017 and 2019 World Championships uh, and was on track to uh, go to Tokyo this year, uh, which unfortunately, obviously, has been pushed back a year. Josh, how are you doing? Thank you for coming on and joining us. Yeah, I'm good. I'm having a nice little morning podcast for you boys over here in uh, in the US. So I'm having a good time and I, I can't wait to get started, really. Yeah, well, I mean, that was the first thing I wanted to, to touch on with you um, is is uh, you're part of Team GB, but since pretty much leaving school, you've based yourself in America. So apart from, you know, clearly being sponsored by Factor 50 now uh, by some uh, <laughs> skincare product being over in, over in the West Coast of America, um, what's that move been like? And, and how, how's being part of Team GB, but being based so far afield? So it's, it's, it's definitely interesting. But the good part about, you know, athletics is that, you know, you, you don't really need to be uh there there but i'm not in a relay i'm not you know on a rugby team where i need to be at practice every day you know what i mean so it's kind of quite easy to do my own thing and 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 just kind of fire over the the training that i'm doing over to the coaches and things like that and and uh kind of keep them in, in the loop as much as possible but you know at the end of the day i have to turn up to the british championships and be be in the top three to make a team it doesn't really make a difference if i'm there training under the the GB coaches or anything like that so it is an interesting sport in that way but I think I quite like it because it allows me to kind of roam around and do do what I want to do where I want to do it and, and kind of get coached by who I want to get coached by so it is an interesting kind of concept it's a lot different to a lot of other sports um, so I know I know even individual sports like diving and things they still need to be a part of you know that structure and things like that but you know running is just kind of a little bit different it's very clear on how you're doing times are very black and white you can run a very fast time and that's you being very fit you can run a very slow time and that's you being very unfit so it's it's pretty it's pretty pretty easy to kind of tell who, who's good and who's bad in this sport yeah well i mean originally you went over there part of a scholarship to the university of, of new mexico and and yeah and i think now you say you're based up on the, the the west coast in seattle there um in terms of the, the that move but also now your own training so to, to the Team GB, do they have no say really in what your uh, training regime looks like? Do your coaches over there stateside communicate with them? Do you as, as the athlete pretty much actually dictate more to the coaches how you want that to be? What's that process like? Because I could imagine that Team GB, uh, once you're part of their team, if you have one of those times where you, you don't turn up and you're not fit and you don't run the time you want to, they've got to be asking questions you know, why? How much say do they have um, with you or is it purely on, on your own shoulders and the coach that you employ? Uh, it's a very interesting question. It's, it's, it, it depends what kind of structure you're in. So the, the only big structure they have like team-wise is, is um, like a funding team. It's like, uh, trying to, I can't remember the name of it. And it's like a tiered funding system. Um, and for, for being in that tiered funding system, you have to have you know, we have to have close contact with a specific British athletics coach. But, you know, everything else is kind of solo. So, you know, I, I went over to the U.S. I wasn't part of that that funding system for the whole time. But the thing is, like, even even if someone's, you know, in the U.K., in Loughborough, one of the hubs of, uh, of athletics in, in the U.K., and they're training with the head coach of British athletics, if they don't come top three in the trials, they're not getting picked. They're not going to be part of the team. So, you know, it, it really has nothing to do with the relationship you have with the British, you know, British athletics coaches. It's more about what performances you can kind of give. So my coach over here, Danny Mackey, he is in close contact with my my British athletics coach. But my British athletics coach doesn't ever coach me. It's just more like, you know, it's checking in, making sure that I'm on the right track. If I start, you know, posting some pretty bad results, I'm sure they'll get more and more involved that's not happened as of now so you know they're able to take a back seat and just trust the kind of decisions that I make in, in my coaching staff and you know in my training day to day to be honest so it, it, it is different to a lot of sports in that way I know that certain sports have um what was it called that you have to be part of an academy or something like that we don't have that and I'm pretty glad about that to be honest because you know when I came out here in 2015 so it was like All right, I need to kind of go out there and, and do my thing and focus on my job and I went out there and did that and then you know I, I, I wanted to stay and you know I, I got an offer from from Brooks Running and, and stayed out here for you know the last this is going to be my sixth year I think out in the US which is a bit crazy. So yeah going I guess 
kind of touching further on that process, kind of going back to 2015, obviously, you'd won the European Juniors and, and on, on good track to kind of make a career out of running. And obviously at that time when you kind of graduate from school and you have to make decisions on where to go next and how to take your career. And, and one of those decisions was moving to America. What was it about the move to America and to New Mexico that kind of inspired you to make that decision? Because it would be very easy and potentially very safe to, to stay in the UK, stay in part of the Team GB setup, and kind of stay kind of where the coaches are and close to home. But you made the maybe more brave decision of, of moving overseas. And what was it about America and about New Mexico that kind of lured you to do that? So I think this is quite funny, to be honest, because I, when I was... When I was in Watson's, the last couple of years of Watson's, I was, I was part of a training group that quite a few of them had been to, the, to America and, and, you know, they had a really good time over there and posted some great results. So I was surrounded by people that had that dream and that were kind of living that dream as well. So I was able to kind of hear both sides of what was going on. I was able to go to a couple of universities in the UK and see what that was like and then, you know, hearing day to day what it was like over in the US. And the US is college system for 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 running is 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 vastly different um it's very focused like you are a professional athlete you get paid to go to university um and and you know you, you get all this gear and you have fantastic coaches that get paid you know a significant amount of money to do their job so i just thought you know this seems like a really good move for me i also might not have had the school results to be in a good university in the uk so i had to read i took some uh exams called the SAT which uh, which is in a US exam so I could get into to college over there and New Mexico specifically it's an out it's an altitude school so we're up at 5,000 feet you know I it, it was it, they had great UK people going there finding great results and and the coach had, had a good history with um, people who ran 1500 meters so you know he he and I were emailing for a while and yeah, I, I never thought I was going to go to a UK university from like from as soon as we started doing all the applications and stuff like that. I, I never even applied to a UK university. I, I knew what I wanted um, and I knew that if, if it was going to go well, I, I'd seen that kind of path that, that other people had already done, you know, go to the US, make um, GB teams and, and, and go out and be successful. So the system in the NCAA is, is just it's it's amazing. It's a very hard system to get out of, and but if you can, you you can you can you know be incredibly successful. So that was kind of my goal. So then, I mean, I mean, I'm well done for doing that and achieving it. And then, kind of, we then look at that path between first of all 2015 and 2017, making it to your first World Championships. What was involved at that time, kind of getting from junior junior level running into that top senior environment that is the World Championships. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I went. I went for the Euro Juniors was just before I went out to the US, and I think that was my that was my first realization that okay, I'm 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 pretty good at this, and I can do this on a <laughs> on a on a big stage. And I was like, all right, that, this makes sense. I can go out to the US, and I have to go out and perform. But my first year in the US wasn't spectacular. Um, it was it was uh, you know subpar to be honest, and um, there was just there was a realization that you know nothing's going to be handed to me over in the u.s um you know you've got a massive country full of you know very hard-working individuals and very talented individuals and if i wanted to break that system and be the best there then i had to just continue to work hard so you know i was i was getting all the gym work stuff in and i was getting all my rehab in and i was getting getting the mileage in and you know it, it just took one race for me to actually break through and, and, and be, you know, that guy. And, and I won my first NCAA title in my sophomore year. And then from there, it kind of just, it was a domino effect. It was like, okay, well, if I can beat everyone in the US, then why can't I go back to the UK trials and, and you know, win or, or be top three? And I ended up being second. So to be honest, looking back, I don't think I was even ready to go to my first world championships. I underperformed quite heavily, but, you know, it was an experience that I'd never take for granted and it was just and it was amazing it was in London and I just I wish I'd prepared a different way I think you know I, I prepared the way that you know British Athletics wanted me to and I, I'd, I'd never molded into that before into kind of their structure and it just it didn't feel right and you know but you kind of learn from those mistakes and and that's what I kind of brought into 2019 and, and kind of you know, was able to perform a lot better on that on that stage in Doha. Um, but you know, it's those experiences that kind of make you into the athlete you are. But yeah, it was 
it was an interesting couple of years in New Mexico. I was at, I ended up only being there in the in the uni team for three years, and then I've been um, professional for the last three with with Brooks running. So no, it's been a hell of a ride, but I'm enjoying it. No, that's cool. Oh, I, you know, one thing you I'm sure won't be underprepared for is is the uh, Olympic Games as and when <laughs> as and when we we, we see them. Um, mm-hmm. We've had, spoken to a number of guests over the last uh, couple of months who who have had their their Olympic Games uh, knocked back for everything that's going on. So, how are you feeling, sort of leading to that? Where are you at in that journey? Uh, have you qualified? Uh, are you still to qualify? If you have qualified, do you have to requalify. I know that the way that the um, the link committee does it is is a little bit different to some other organisations. So, you know, w- what's that journey looking like at the moment? So, to qualify, I have to run a certain time, which is sub three thirty five, and I have to be top three at the trials. Um, they they closed that window after Doha last year. And I, I was able to run 332 last year. So I, I've got the qualifying pretty chill. I have that all set and done. So if, if I don't run another step until the Olympic trials, I can still I can still make it. Um, so I just got to turn up to the Olympic trials now, which I think is June 26th, 27th, uh, and, and be top three. So if I if I turn up and be top three, then then I'm going straight there. And, and that's an automatic qualification. So... It's 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 a very hard event right now. We had you know three guys in the final of World Championships last year, ended up being fifth, sixth, and tenth. Um, we have you know top four, top five guys in the world that didn't get picked last year for the World Championships. Um, so it's a very hard event, and we have continually great talent that comes through in in British athletics. So it's definitely not an easy easy job. But you know, I definitely believe that. I'm I'm ready, and if you make that British team, you you're good enough to make the final, and you're good enough to be on the podium. So, so just to go back to research, so, so it's as simple as mm-hmm. whoever the top three at those Olympic qualifying trials, whoever that is, goes. So you could have run that, you could have been run the best, you know, in the last year, last twelve eighteen months, if it, you know, if it hadn't been a pandemic, you smashed all the times, whatever, yeah. and have an off day, trip, fall nip your hamstring, something, and if it doesn't quite go right in that one particular race, that's it. Is, is it as simple as that? So, yeah, you obviously have to have the qualifying time. So, I mean, if, if Rory Evans comes to the British Championships on 1,500-meter starting line <laughs> and everyone falls and he, and, he, and he wins, he might not be able to go. But, yes, you are <laughs> Don't right. take his yeah. dreams away. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Rory could run 50, meet, 50 meters. Yeah. Well, well, 50 I'll, meters. I'll stick to the 100, not for the pace, just for the fact that I wouldn't be able to run any further than that. <laughs> yeah. It's uh yeah, it'd be quite funny. Uh, so no, you have to. I think you you have to be like top twenty five in the UK to be invited to British Championships, and then you have to run that sub three thirty five. So if a guy hasn't run sub three thirty five and he makes top three, he can't get picked. He's unable to get picked. But if there is five or six of us and the best person falls or like whatever, that's just that's that's the that's that's it really. British athletics have the ability to to pick that person because the person in third place is up to their discretion. So they can actually say, actually, the person in fourth is better than this other person in third. Um, because if, if we look back, their head-to-heads are better. And we've pretty much, if, if British athletics fund them, then, yeah, they'll probably go. But, <laughs> yeah, but it's been seen in the past. And But the thing is, at the end of the day, like in racing, and the same in every sport, if you don't turn up on the right day, doing the right things then that's life you know you know I think I was speaking to someone about this it's crazy I'll, I'll be I'll train for you know I think this is I started at nine years old if I if I don't get the next if there's two races that I don't get three and a half minutes worth of my life incredibly great then I, I think my career is not going to be where I want it to be so you know my my career is probably going to be kind of defined in about seven minutes so you know you got to be able to prepare and get ready for those for those small small t- like sections of time and, and you got to be you got to be very on for those moments and if you're not on for the olympic trials then how can you be on for the olympics is pretty much the the argument there yeah i mean that's fascinating but you make a good point and i think how does that then kind of that like pressure almost affect you mentally because that is a lot to kind of ask of yourself to make sure and obviously there's a lot goes into the preparation to ensuring that those kind of small periods of time you are at your very best but do you kind of feel almost a burden or an extra weight of pressure on those performances and do you think that it 
it affects you mentally in some sort of capacity or, or does it almost excite you? Because I'm sure for some people that would excite them, that pressure of performing in that environment. Yeah, it's, it, it's so interesting. We have, you know, I have a lot of people on my team right now and other athletes are starting to go and see psychologists. Like we're starting to be on the highest level of the sport. So, you know, when you're riding that line, obviously there's nerves, you know, you've got brands putting a lot of money towards you. You've got, you know, coaches putting time, you've got your parents, you know, working hard and, and, and kind of making sure that you're okay. And, and, and just everything's towards this one moment. But for me specifically, I've been working for this, you know, for, for my whole life. So it's like, I would never let myself down because I know I'm going to give myself 100%. So I prepared for this as much as I can and, and I'm going to go out and, and give myself the result that I deserve. Um, and yeah, it's there's split decisions you can make. There's things you can do well and things you can do badly. But, you know, I'm still I'm still only 22, 23. So it just uh, it, it excites me because I, I feel like I'm going to have lots of opportunities in this situation. And, and uh, I feel like that my competitors might not. So... Uh, they're a little bit older than me, so I'm going to take that to my advantage and, and kind of come to come to a British Athletics, uh, British Championships, pretty chill and, and and just go out and do my job. And you know that's what I've been training for. If you're nervous about races, then turn up to training and pretend it's a race. Like you got to, if you've been doing the sport for the last ten years, it's pretty easy to go out and do your job. And you just got to do the right things for for yourself mentally and physically to get yourself in that position for the start line. Amazing. Well, it sounds like you, you've got it sussed anyway. So, good luck for that when when the big moments come up. Um, I want to just touch on a bit more now about the American system, about how you're going over in America, um, and about the kind of professional running system over there. So you said you graduated from New Mexico and then you joined up with Brooks Running and you went professional. And just yeah. how does the professional system work over there because i feel in the uk we're very kind of attuned to professional systems within team sports and then yeah. within individual sports it's with the team gb and the olympic system that you have your professional lifestyle where in america it feels a bit distant you have these franchises like brooks running and i just wanted to know a bit more about how that all works and where your funding comes from and what on what your kind of biggest competitions within brooks are within the year Mm, yeah so so when i signed to new mexico i i you just sign like a year-to-year deal with them and and you go to university and you get paid to do that you get a stipend and stuff like that and all your school's paid for but kind of the reason for the answer blade and why it's so good is people want to have this big name this big you know beat all these people and have these times and i was able to you know, get three titles and I was able to run the, the NCAA record. So I was able to have a big enough name to come out of college early. So I, you know, I, I could have been there for, at this point, it could be there for seven years, but I was there for three. But because uh, of coronavirus, I could have been there for a while. But um, yeah, so at, at that point, Brooks, um, which is just like a running brand, you know, like Nike, Adidas, you know, all these other brands as well. He kind of said to me, look, we have a, we have a professional team um, with this coach and we want to we want to give you an offer at the end of the year and there's specific rules you can do and can't do so I, whenever I met with them I had to meet with them with you know a couple of advisors from UNM to make sure everything was within the NCAA system because you can't you can't be a professional as well as being in the NCAA so there's a, there's a weird fine line there so um, yeah I, I finished my last semester at UNM and, and you know Brooks offered me this pretty much this job that they're going to pay my whole salary uh, I'm going to come and move to Seattle and, and start training with this professional team with other professionals. All of them are American. And then we have one Portuguese girl here. And uh, yeah, I just I kind of moved out here. And, you know, in in that kind of signing process, you've got other companies trying to trying to give you give you contracts and, and, and sell sell their company. But Brooks is, is a bit of a smaller company that I just genuinely feel a part of it. My my Bruce contract was probably like eight to ten pages. The Nike contract was probably like fifty pages, and I feel like there's a certain amount of trust in in someone that can only give you an eight to ten page contract, which says the same things in a in a fifty page contract. Um, and so I said, you know, this seems like a great deal, and and uh, it's a company that I believe in. Their their trainers and and gear are really good, and and I'm able to kind of go and train with a with a very very good coach. So. That was never really discussed with British Athletics. Um, I kind of made that move. For them, it's a pretty similar thing, to be honest. They were like, all right, well, when you're professional, it means you can spend more time on running. So they were happy with it. So, yeah, I, I then graduated um, with my degree in 20... Was it last year, 2018 or 2019? 
and I'm doing my masters right now in business. So I'm doing that stuff online mostly, but yeah, I'm just, I thought I'd put that in there to say I'm further in my education, but I'm not. Really. <laughs> it's something we often ask people about uh, athletes about what comes at life after all, <laughs> but I hope that's a long way uh, away for you. Um, I just what <laughs> you know, you've talked about there going to the British champs, the Olympics, you know, get a contract with Brooks professional. You also said that you started running at nine. At yeah. what point would you, if you were to be really honest with yourself, did you really make the goal of either becoming becoming a professional athlete or or, or going to the Olympic Games? You know, we all dream as as young mm-hmm. sportsmen and women about going to Olympics or World Cups or Crucibles or Masters or whatever your sport is. But at yeah. what point did did that become a sort of fairy tale, kids, whatever? And actually, you went, no, this is this is something that's achievable. This is my goal. This, this is it for me. I mean, was it at nine when you were running with a beanbag on your head or, or you know, the 60 <laughs> meter dash or when was that sort of almost, you know, come to you moment? So I don't know, like at nine, I went to like this summer camp thing and I really enjoyed it. And me and my brother were quite close and we used to do all sports. We used to do it together. So whenever I was on the football team, me, I would go up a year and, and play with him whenever you know, we were doing rugby, my dad would be coaching us. Whenever we were running, like my parents would sit there and watch. Like it was a very family forward thing. My dad was obviously, he was good at sport. He was a professional rugby player for a bit. My brother obviously now is a professional rugby player. It was always, I was always going to be professional in some sport. It was never, I, I never had any doubt in my mind from when I was nine years old that I would find a sport. It used to be rugby in freaking primary school. Um, and then I think it was quite fine. I don't know what age it was. I think it was like 13 or something like that, 13 or 14. And where my dad was, was driving me and my brother back from athletics practice one day. And he was like, boys, like, do you think you're going to be a professional athlete? And I, and I think we both were like, yeah, yeah. My, my dad was like, okay, what, what sport? And my brother was like, oh, I want to be professional athletics. And I was like, I want to be a professional rugby player. <laughs> and I, I just find that so interesting. That I think my dad giggled and was like, ah, yeah, sure. Because he knew that my brother's talents were much better than mine in rugby and that my talents were much better than his in athletics. And he was like, we're both built so differently that it doesn't make sense that you're making that decision, but you guys will figure it out. And uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult to kind of tell when, but, you know, school wasn't something that I particularly enjoyed, the education side of things. So I always was able to find the fun in, in going to PE or going to go for a run after school or, you know, during lunch or something like that. And, and you know, that's just always what I wanted to do. And, you know, I think Watson's was great about taking someone's talents and allowing them to, you know, pursue it. You know, rugby was obviously a massive thing in, in Watson's, but, you know, they were able to allow me to do my running thing and, and support that as much as possible with the PE teachers and stuff as well. Um, you know, even though it was more of an extracurricular outside of school, it was still involved in my schooling days. So, you know, I'm very grateful for that. Oh, it sounds like um, you and your brother both made the right decision uh, <laughs> when Bush yeah, yeah. comes to show. Although I would, I would enjoy seeing him run a 1500 meters, I have to say. Uh, <laughs> um, right. Okay. Well, you know, you've had a lot of pressure. You've got a lot of pressure coming up, but you've now got to face the biggest pressure that any athlete <laughs> has to do in their career and face the utility players' gauntlet of questions. So, 45 seconds, Josh, of random quick fire questions. Um, are we ready for this? I am. I am. I'm nervous, though. It's now time to run the gauntlet. Too hot or too cold? Too hot. Is Jedi a legitimate religion? No. Best animal? Uh, dog. Dark or white chocolate? Dark. Geography or history? Neither. Horrible. <laughs> Flat earthers, what's their deal? <sighs> it's just too much time on their hands. Would you rather read a book or watch a film? Film. Made in Chelsea or Towie? Towie, for sure. What's the best starburst? Oh, uh, purple. <laughs> dark oh, chocolate? God. I didn't think you had the level of sophistication for dark chocolate, Josh. Well, you know, mate, I'm an old guy now with a beard, you see. You've got to keep those <laughs> appearances up, you know? And do you get, get Towie and Made in Chelsea over in, over in Seattle? I don't, but my mum watches it all the time. So I used to watch it when I was when I was at home. And I was then whenever say, I go home, my mum watched it. 
I was about to say there is a correct answer to that one, and the answer is neither. Um, but unfortunately, you let yourself down there. <laughs> oh, mate, I watched Howie when I was growing up. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Josh, thank you so much for your time. Um, we know you have to shoot off and, and get on the track and do some training this morning. Um, really great insight, and, and obviously all the best for, for when that Olympic trial comes round, and we'll be uh, watching and supporting closely. Thank you very much. It was it was a lot of fun, and I'll be an avid listener now. <laughs> <laughs> no excuse, mate. Thanks, Josh. Really interesting thoughts from from Josh there, Rory, on kind of the sacrifices. Uh, we talk about sacrifices a lot that the athletes and and professional uh, people within the game have to make to, to be successful, but to make that decision to, to uproot his, himself and, and go across the other side of the world and put himself in an environment which certainly would be more challenging and, 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 and harder for him, but knows that if it pays off, it would work. Awesome to hear. Yeah, and it's amazing how it comes down to such small margins and just performance on one individual day. And then we know that that is the case with sport. And that you have to perform on on the day on the, on the, when it most matters, whether that's in a final, and whether that's in this case a qualifying. But it just seems even more exaggerated for him that it's all done to one day, getting to the Olympics, not getting to the Olympics. And it's it's amazing that he was so positive about it and and so confident almost that he knew that he was prepared to be able to perform when it mattered. Yeah, embracing that that challenge. I mean, and almost just yeah, you know, that acceptance, having to accept that is just the way it is and sounds like he's got an incredible support network around him um which which makes such a difference but it is the beauty of individual sports i mean I, i'm someone who, who's always played team sports likes that camaraderie but the poetic nature of an individual sport just you and your mental state and your body just for that 10 seconds three and a half minutes whatever it might be just incredible and the fact he's talking about three and a half minutes and how what a breeze that would be is is incredible i i, I could i don't think i could run even 700 meters in three and a half minutes well i think we know that i could and so we wouldn't even get into that conversation <laughs> but no thank you josh for this time some some awesome to hear a different perspective on sport anyway that'll do us for this week i look forward to hearing some uh, some responses to some of the comments we've made um, but as ever everyone thank you for your time and stay safe